Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. A major part of my analysis of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus opposes not just the temple establishment in general, but the actual priestly aristocracy and their racket of ritual sacrifice. And not just in Israel, but everywhere. Now, this sort of analysis can offend two groups of people, both of which I do not wish to offend, and not just because I don't like offending people, but because I share some of the same sensibilities with both of these groups. They are evangelical Christians and scholars. While I can no longer really claim to be an evangelical, that is where I come from. And as often as the majority of evangelicals in the U.S. continually disappoint me, I can never really shake the sense that they are my people. And I'm sorry if that offends other people, but, you know, what can I say? That's where I come from. Evangelicals may object to the assertion that Jesus opposes sacrifice and the priesthood because the first part of our Bible tells us that sacrifice was prescribed for Israel by God. And modern Western Christianity has often taught that sacrifice is only replaced, not opposed, by Jesus, and this through his own sacrifice on the cross. This is the doctrine known as penal substitutionary atonement. In a couple of other episodes of this podcast, I have talked about why I and most New Testament scholars don't believe that the New Testament actually teaches penal substitutionary atonement, at least in a literal sense. So I won't get into that here. But to my evangelical friends, I offer this. You can think about Jesus' opposition to sacrifice in the Gospel of Matthew as progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is a strategy that I've heard often in the evangelical world to explain why certain things in the Bible are no longer held to be true or are no longer practiced. Matthew has Jesus' appeal to progressive revelation when he tells his hearers that God once allowed men to arbitrarily divorce their wives because men are so hard to teach. Jesus appeals to progressive revelation because men are slow learners. Well, this same sort of thing could be said of sacrifice. Israel arose in a cultural context in which ritual sacrifice was ubiquitous. Everybody did it. So God worked with Israel one step at a time. God began by forbidding Israel to sacrifice humans, like some of the nations around them who were practicing human sacrifice, But God allowed Israel to keep the practice of animal sacrifice, also practiced by virtually all the nations around them, because it would be too hard for Israel to give up sacrifice completely. But by the first century, God decided that they were ready to take another step and give up the practice of sacrifice altogether. Now, others may object to my suggestion here as playing into anti-Jewish tendencies in Christianity because I'm suggesting that the New Testament takes that next step away from sacrifice, leaving the outdated Older Testament behind, so that people think of the New Testament and Christianity 
as superior to the outdated Older Testament and Judaism. In, in response to that, I want to suggest that many Jews, whether explicitly or consciously or otherwise, share this same belief in progressive revelation, understanding their faith to have evolved. And many Jews, even if the temple in Jerusalem were rebuilt, would not go back to the practice of sacrificing animals. So both Jews and Christians often appeal to the idea of progressive revelation. And I see no reason why it can't be appealed to in the case of Jesus' opposition to sacrifice and the priesthood in Matthew. As for scholars, some will object to my analysis on academic grounds, finding evidence that early Jesus followers continued to sacrifice at the temple while it was still standing, and that Jesus in Matthew tacitly affirms this practice. I address this objection in my special episode, Jesus Against the Power of Temples, Priesthoods, and Sacrificial Systems, and it is way too much to review here, so I will simply refer you to that episode if you want to know how I address that objection. Another reason, though, that some scholars and some non-scholars might object to my analysis is that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as a pious and devout Jew, and no devout Jew would oppose the priesthood and sacrificial system as such because these things were central to the faith. Rejecting these things would be tantamount to rejecting the faith. I also address this line of thinking in my special episode, but I'm going to address it again here. To say that Jesus in Matthew is a devout Jew, that is, a religiously devout Jew, is to read this text through a religious lens, with the modern category of religion. In the early episodes of this podcast, I talked about how the modern category of religion did not exist in the ancient world, and therefore a religious reading of the text is anachronistic. Now, the sacrificial system and the priesthood were central institutions in Israel and a major part of their cultural tradition. But, and here's the thing, sacrificial systems and priesthoods were central to virtually all of the societies of the first century Mediterranean world, at least among the elites. A priesthood and sacrificial system were not unique to Israel. Jesus' opposition to them in Matthew has to do with class and power. He opposes them not on religious grounds, but because they are institutions of the upper classes to maintain power over the common people. In this way, he stands in the tradition of the Hebrew prophets who regularly opposed upper-class power, even the priesthood and sacrificial system. Often the prophets merely opposed the excesses of those institutions, but in at least one case, Isaiah 66, the final chapter of that book, the opposition to the sacrificial system seems to be total. Isaiah 66, verse 3 reads, Whoever slaughters an ox is like one who kills a human being. Whoever sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever presents a grain offering like one who offers swine's blood. Whoever makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their ways, and in their abominations they take delight. 
the opposition in this passage seems to be complete, not merely a reformist concern. Now, Matthew does present Jesus as standing in the traditions of his people, but Matthew also presents Jesus as reinterpreting the traditions and laws of Israel in ways that benefit and liberate the peasantry and societal outcasts, and if necessary, calling for an abolition of upper-class institutions. In doing so, he stands in a very honorable tradition of Israelite champions of social justice. Again, I refer you to my special episode, Jesus Against Temples, Priesthoods, and Sacrificial Systems, for a more complete discussion of these things. Meanwhile, I want to say a few things about how upper-class elites often interpret traditions to maintain and increase their power over the people. Ruling classes have ways of staying in power through myths and rituals that they either create or appropriate. In many ancient societies, the ruling classes convinced everyone else that they were the children of the gods, or were at least chosen by the gods to rule. They also established elaborate sacrificial rites that everyone had to, at some level, participate in if they wanted to maintain good standing in the community. Today, the ruling elites in capitalist societies employ various myths, among them the myth of meritocracy, which I covered a couple of episodes ago. And capitalism has its rituals too. Before I talk about the rituals of capitalism, I first want to say that rituals are not entirely evil or false. They can sometimes be helpful, and what they try to do for us may have a mixture of truth and illusion. Ancient sacrificial rituals may have served a purpose, or multiple purposes, aside from accruing power to the ruling class. It's hard to say what exactly motivated them or how they evolved. These are things that are vigorously debated among anthropologists. But some of the possibilities are that they served to contain violence. They did this by focusing the collective violent energy of the community into the sacrificial victim, whether human or animal. According to this theory, there are always tensions between people in any community, and these tensions can easily erupt into violence. But ritual sacrifice would release the energy of these potentially violent tensions into the sacrificial victim, thereby sparing the rest of the community from spates of uncontrolled violence. According to this theory, sacrificial rituals were a sophisticated way that ancient communities controlled violence that could otherwise erupt uncontrollably. Another less disconcerting possibility, which works only in the case of animal sacrifice, is that this ritual acknowledged the sacrifice that an animal was making so that humans can eat meat. The meat of the sacrificial animals was eaten by people, and there is some evidence that pre-modern people would regularly engage in some sort of sacred ritual any time they killed an animal to eat the meat. So, sacrificial rites may have served some constructive purposes even if they were then used by the ruling classes to obtain and hold power over the common people. Now, getting back to the rituals of capitalism and meritocracy. 
It's hard to say whether these rituals and their undergirding mythologies are more sophisticated or less sophisticated than ancient rituals and their undergirding myths. René Girard, probably the most famous academic who has promoted the idea that ancient sacrificial rituals serve to contain the collective violence of communities by redirecting that violence into the sacrificial victim, a process which he calls scapegoating, he finds modern scapegoating rituals to be sloppy in comparison. He maintains that modern scapegoating, such as blaming immigrants for what is wrong in our society, is, in comparison, sloppy. It is easy to see through and deconstruct, whereas ancient sacrificial rituals were elaborate and sophisticated. On the other hand, the myth of meritocracy and other capitalist myths seem very sophisticated and difficult to see through. It seems only natural that those who work the hardest or smartest should reap the greatest rewards. Even if on closer examination we can see that many people who work long, hard hours remain poor, and many who don't are much better off, and some, such as hedge fund managers, who work really, really hard at things that destroy the work of others, reap the greatest economic rewards. The greatest unmasking of the mythology of capitalism occurs when we step back and see that it is a system that works really, really hard, 24-7 in fact, exploiting workers and destroying the planet. The myth and mirage of hard work. Is it sophisticated or sloppy? And what are its rituals? Well, I think mostly we can collapse them all into one type of ritual, hard work. Hard work itself is the ritual of capitalism, and it comes in many forms. It's difficult to argue with because hard work can often be very beneficial and fruitful. And yet, the cumulative effect of all of this hard work will be the death of us as the organic environment that we depend on is devastated by our overproduction and overconsumption. As for mounting any effective resistance to it through nonviolent direct action, it is difficult to disrupt this ritual of hard work because it is so pervasive and ubiquitous. Where would you go to disrupt it? In comparison, you might argue that the ancient rites of sacrifice were much easier to disrupt because they occurred in very specific places. And in first century Israel, they occurred only in one place, the temple in Jerusalem. Location, location, location. It's not really everything, but it does shape the most dramatic scene of nonviolent direct action in the Gospel of Matthew. And that is what this episode is about. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 54 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin by reading Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17. 
Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So after entering Jerusalem as a peasant king, riding a donkey, perhaps a parody of the imperial entrance processions, he goes straight to the temple. As I mentioned in the last episode, Warren Carter has noted through his survey of royal entrance processions in the ancient Mediterranean world that upon entering a city, one of the first things that a king would do was to go to a temple and make sacrifices to the gods of the city to take possession of it. Well, Jesus goes straight to and into the temple, but instead of making sacrifices, he completely disrupts the sacrificial system and seems to at least temporarily take over this institution that is the center of political and social power in Israel. We will see him dominate that space with new rules and teaching. But first, he gets rid of the sacrificial apparatus by driving out the money changers, and those selling animals for sacrifice. Now, some have charged Jesus with being violent here, but Jesus only assaults physical property, overturning tables. There is no mention of assaulting people. He is said to drive them out. But how does one unarmed man drive out a group of other men who work for the ruling class? And with the temple guard standing nearby, no doubt. Not by physical force, but it seems by the power of shame. His righteous indignation is so powerful that the force of shame drives out a whole group of men who work for the most powerful entity in the city. Now that's how we might understand it sociologically, but there is a literary and perhaps spiritual way to look at this too. Warren Carter points out that the verb translated drove out is one that has been used in all of the demonic exorcisms in Matthew. Jesus seems to be driving out demonic and satanic forces when he drives out the money changers and those selling animals. Whenever Jesus has a conflict with scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, the representatives of the temple, these opponents of Jesus have been characterized in Matthew as evil and trying to tempt Jesus, just as the devil is evil and tries to tempt Jesus. Furthermore, the second temptation by the devil in chapter 4 occurred on the pinnacle of the temple, indicating that Satan not only gives power to the Roman Empire, but also to the Roman puppet government in Jerusalem housed at the temple. So Jesus has to drive out Satan from the temple. Jesus opposes this satanic power structure because it serves to give power and wealth to the ruling class while further impoverishing and marginalizing the peasants and outcasts of society. 
Notice that the text specifically mentions that Jesus overturns the tables of those selling doves. That can also be translated pigeons. The Greek word for dove is the same as for pigeon. The pigeons were there because that is the only concession to poor people made by the law. If they couldn't afford the larger animals for sacrifice, they could sacrifice pigeons. So the temple ruling class gladly sold them pigeons for sacrifice. Most common peasants did not have the wherewithal to travel to Jerusalem regularly to make sacrifices, even with pigeons. But for the few that could, there they were, on offer, for a price. Jesus quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Whether or not the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah completely condemn the whole system of sacrifice at the temple, and the last chapter of Isaiah indicates that Isaiah just might be calling for an end to it all, Jesus in Matthew certainly does seem to be shutting the whole thing down. He's not looking to reform it, but to abolish it. Jesus recognizes this whole system for the marginalizing and exploitative apparatus that it is, a form of socio-psychological control over the people that marginalizes those who can't participate and brings in a steady source of income for the ruling class. Jesus has been challenging this system from the beginning, even when he was organizing in Galilee. In chapter 8, in the first episode of an individual healing, he sends a cleansed leper to the priests for sacrifices as a testimony against them. See episode 15 for a full unpacking of that text. After that, he forgives the sins of a paralytic without sacrifices. In the very next passage, he quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he quotes Hosea again in chapter 12, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And now in chapter 21, he enters the temple and shuts down the sacrificial system. Then, for the crowning act of civil disobedience, Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple. Leviticus 21 explicitly prohibits the blind and the lame from entering the temple. And then 2 Samuel 5.8 says, David said on that day, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. But Jesus again inverts the Davidic paradigm by healing the blind and the lame in the temple. And then the children, the most vulnerable members of that society, whom Jesus has twice taught will be at the center of the new society. They yell, Hosanna, save us, to the son of David. Jesus has entered the capital city as a peasant king, hailed as a son of David. But is he really a son of David? David hated the blind and the lame and prohibited them from entering. Jesus, on the other hand, loves them and heals them in the temple. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. 
Please spread the word about this podcast and give us five-star ratings and glowing reviews that will draw others to this podcast. You can send questions and comments to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 54 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Amen.